From the early days, when we are growing up to when we go to school, we tend to be involved in a lot of activities from sports to music, painting, coding classes. But as we grow up, we tend to specialize. One is a product manager or a Python programmer or even a doctor. According to my good friend, Salman Ansari, this is where we have an opportunity to break out of the typical norms and become a polymath, a person with extensive knowledge in several domains. In this episode, I learned more about Salman's career, as well as his take on how can someone become a polymath. Enjoy our next episode. Hello, folks. Welcome to The Work Item. I am super jazzed about our guest today, Salman Ansari. Welcome to the show. Exciting to talk to you again. We last chatted in person in San Francisco Years ago, I want to say Ages. 2018. Yes, yes, which is a long time in in any any measure of time, let alone let alone the current the current period measure of time. <laughs> right, especially after last year, it feels like a decade ago. It feels like a decade. It feels forever. But it's great to see you. It's great to hear your voice. Very much mutual, Salman. Tell us more about what are you doing these days? Uh sure. So I've kind of come upon this. I guess you could call it like mixed bag of, of different kinds of work. You know, you know, my background is in tech and engineering and, and working in startups for a long time. And I kind of wanted to get into a place where I, I can still do some of the things that, that, you know, I've been doing for a long time, working on engineering and, and working with startups, but also give myself some space to do creative projects. So right now I actually work part time. Uh, a few days a week on with this uh, uh, my one of my friends he it's an AI startup uh, called Unsupervised so I do sort of engineering product and you know uh, other kinds of work with them and the rest of my time basically I spend kind of doing miscellaneous creative projects so that's actually been really fun it started out kind of with a newsletter and some writing and that led to some drawing and some comics and animation and and now I'm actually uh, working on writing a book uh, of, of short stories, uh, fables, which was something that just kind of came up along the way. So yeah, each week is kind of really different. I mean, there's some parts that are pretty, pretty constant, but it's a fun, interesting, challenging sort of mix because, you know, defining your own work is, is also difficult and getting the motivation to, you know, and, and feeling good about myself in terms of, am I doing enough or what am I doing? Am I working on the right things? But yeah, those are kind of the, the things that, that I've spent a lot of time. In. And to be honest, a lot of conversations, talking with people is, is probably one of the ways that a lot of my ideas move forward. Conversations like these are, are great for, for many reasons. And, and I consider them, you know, very important part of, of sort of the ecosystem of stuff that, that I do. I think it's an underrated skill of actually being able to talk to other people and absorb their ideas and thoughts because as engineers we often have this trope of the genius engineer that sits in a room and just shells <laughs> out code and at the end of the day they'll come up with this genius solution that just solves every problem but the reality is you're coming up with so much better ideas and thoughts when you talk to people yeah i think that's you know it's um it's like a it's like a unlock code, um, you know, like a secret code to, to activate God mode is when you realize like, oh, I don't have to do everything. I don't have to have all the answers. It actually completely changes the complexion of, of many of your interactions. Uh, you know, as I've, you know, I've played different roles, like uh, as an engineer, I've also been kind of in management and in CTO role. And, and when I think about what does it mean to be a senior engineer, one of the things I always think about is a lot of times my most important job as senior engineer is to be in the room and ask obvious questions so that A, others can feel like it's important and perfectly okay to ask questions and expose that, which which assumes you don't necessarily know the answer to them. But what I always find interesting is that they seem obvious, but actually we soon discover that like, we don't quite understand the state of affairs here, or like we were kind of pursuing the wrong trail of thought. Like, you know, we tend to, especially as engineers, we get really excited about solutions. We want to jump in and say, hey, let's do this, let's do this. And then we start, you know, usually maybe there's arguments or back forths about implementation or something when it's like if you really if you really sort of sat down and, and just sort of made sure you asked the right questions up front you know you could you could avoid three months four months of work and so yeah conversations are the key to that is is talking to people and, and trying to get them to 
provide that tiny bit of insight that can help you realize, oh man, we're not even talking about the right thing here. Like, you know, we're not even at the right premise. Uh, And that's so important. I love that because when you rise the ranks of the engineering career ladder, oftentimes seniority doesn't mean that you write more code, you solve more bugs. Again, a misconception because people think that if only I can just solve more bugs and write more code, I'll be able to get promoted and I'll become a senior engineer. But it's so much more than that. It's about being that person that can steer the team in the right direction That's right. indirectly without necessarily saying that, That's right. hey, we should be building this way or this way. You're not the chief decision maker. Yeah, I think you use this word and I think it's a really good word is empower. Uh, if you think about engineers, we love to think about scalability and we love to think about, you know, and so and so really, if you think about it, being an individual contributor is the most you know, unscalable way to have impact, large impact. I mean, you having to write the code, it's it's really, uh, I mean, you can definitely, you know, for example, you could put in the framework of an architecture that that leads to, to, to a lot of other folks being able to be more productive, things like that. But if you're able to steer the organization in a different direction, if you're able to influence the culture, if you're able to unlock others, uh, you know, I think one of the most amazing things is when you when you do this well enough and then you come into a meeting and you see everybody coming with that mindset of, hey, we don't know everything. We're asking questions. And and then you're it's actually an incredible place to be is in that place when when everyone, as they say, like sort of check their ego at the door and, you know, you're able to to encourage people to, to ask the hard questions. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely see. You know, when I think about like one of the one of the things I reflect on is when you work on startups for like more than a decade, you really just see a lot of, up. you know, you basically learn a lot of failure lessons. Like you try things and they just don't work and you learn uh, high long term scale lessons. So, for example, what happens when you work on a product and you, you know, you use your engineering coding skills for three years on it. Right. And then after those three years you realize maybe actually the lines of code I wrote were important, but you know it was actually the direction we took with its marketing or um, actually the organizational challenges that we ran into along the way that compromised it. And so it's not that the code isn't important, it's just that it's not the be all and end all. There's so much more that plays into it and, and you start to see those other things along the way. I find that liberating because then it's it's not it's not like your only contribution your only way of showing who you are and and, and what you're made of is is through these this particular language <laughs> you must express it in this language uh, you know I feel I feel liberated because then I can contribute in many different ways uh, as so can everyone else I love that I love that because one you're focusing on the fact that it's not just about a tangible deliverable because we get so lost in that when we think that, I have to show something for every single conversation, every single talk that I deliver. And it's not. You're building relationships. You're you're empowering people to make decisions that are the right decisions, that are decisions that can help your business, your product. And it's not just about everything needs to be about my own contribution. It might not be. Right. Yeah, I think um, you know, as as we say that, I'm sure there are some listeners who are who are thinking, yeah, that sounds great, but you know, my manager, my boss doesn't think that way, and and I and I just want to speak to that for a moment because it's it's very true, uh, it's very real. You know, I've been in situations like that where, w- without going to specific examples, you know, sometimes you know, man- managers don't really have the agency to determine how they measure people. Sometimes, especially if you're in larger organizations, there's a very rigid structure of how each person is measured. And the manager kind of just feels like it's their job to sort of check in on how you're doing with that. And, and it ends up having a lot to do with the number of lines of code you commit or, or things like that. And so, you know, I think it's important to be cognizant that, Sometimes we may be growing as individuals. We may be learning the skills of of multifaceted contributions, but they're just not appreciated by our management or or even our peers. I've been in that situation and it really is tough. But later when I was in a situation where it was appreciated, I had experience doing that. So it's kind of like this trade-off of like, am I going to grow me or am I going to 
you know, rigidly ensure that I meet the criteria of the, the specific position that I'm in. You kind of want to play a balance if you can. I always feel like it shouldn't be the only criteria um, that you take into because, you know, it's your career. No one's going to look out for you and tell you exactly what you need to do. I mean, some people will if you find a good mentor, but I always feel like you got to look out for yourself. You've got to think about how you're going to grow, how what skills are you going to present. And um, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention that because, you know, it is hard, but uh, it's a, it's important and it grows you as a person and, and that can help a lot in the long term. I want to know your thoughts on this idea, especially for folks early in their career that are listening to the show, mm-hmm. where when you're just starting out, you have no authority, you have no experience. It's very hard to push and say, you know what, I want to do things the way I want or the way right. I expect is the right thing. Is it worth as kind of in a very, I want to say like brutal way of putting it, of just like sucking it up, dealing with it for X number of years and saying, you know what? While I'm growing my career, I'll do this. I know it's not ideal, but I'll do this anyway. And then as you grow in your career, push towards something that is more aligned with what you're trying to accomplish. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that the main thing I would say is if we go back to those lessons we were talking about, there are times where, you know, you could ask someone to, hey, I'm going to need you to play a lead role here uh, on this project or on this product. And so that means, you know, as you're writing code, you know, put in pieces for the right architecture and things like that. And what you'll find is a lot of folks may have excellent intention and they're very, very intelligent thinkers. They just haven't seen like, like, how do you know what the right architecture is? I think there's kind of a couple of ways. The first one might be maybe you read some books. Um, To be honest, I've never really sat and like read an architecture book. Like I've read them and skimmed them and I'm like, yeah, I can sort of see how in some cases we did some of these principles, but at least I don't think most people learn from that. What most people learn from is they do it the wrong way in short, sort sort of small ways and they start to notice this isn't quite working out and then they, they abstract that into a better pattern and, and then, and so they need to do it the wrong way enough times is basically what I'm saying. And so if you're really, really early in your career, you're not going to know. You're not going to know because you haven't had that personal experience and you'll never have that much conviction about it. So that's a good place to defer to, to, to folks around you. But I think having awareness is important. So like you might be early in your career, but you might be in a tough position where you're surrounded by people who don't make decisions with much thoughtfulness or make decisions sort of very erratically and very in a reactionary way. Oh, the, you know, CEO is, is, is freaking out about this. We got to do that. And, and that's the only way decisions are made. In that scenario, you might have more maturity than your more senior peers. You might have. And so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like being in your body and being in that place of that person who is doing these, you know, following along, like you said, you know, taking, taking it in stride. But having awareness and learning from each one and saying, well, for example, mentally, I think we probably should do this. I'm going to note, I'm going to pay attention, and I'm going to learn from this. So maybe in one year you see, you're like, yep, I had an instinct there. And that's awesome, actually, because I don't think there's anything more powerful than having your instinct, you know, your intuition grow and and be and be rewarded and, and kind of told like, okay. I should trust myself because I think that's one of the challenges, especially early in your career, is you don't know how to trust yourself yet. So, yeah, I do think like, for example, in the first years of my career, you know, it took a long time before I started to really push more. Actually, that was probably the thing that took me the longest time. Yeah, I think that's an important skill to learn and it doesn't come right away. You can't short circuit it. You kind of just have to, like you said, work through it until you get to that point where you've seen seen it enough that you can say, okay, in this area, at least I, I feel pretty strongly here and, and, and I should be able to speak up on it. On the topic of learning, what are the things that really stood out to me about your work? And since I knew you for a couple of years, is that you advocate for being a polymath. And you had a an essay on the subject that when viral. I saw it on Twitter and I saw it posted by a couple of people that were not you. And I was like, I know who wrote this. (laughs) Tell us more about that. Tell us more. What does it mean to be a polymath? 
And why is it important to you? Yeah, that essay really, really did take off. I mean, I, the, the crazy part was when Toby from, from Shopify, the CEO, he shared it too. I think, you know, a couple of things to note here is that polymathism, I guess, is kind of like more, it's more of a pursuit of that. I don't, you can't necessarily sort of wake up one day and say you're a polymath, but it's, it's really the ideas that I resonate with of exploring multiple pursuits and doing so in an intentional way. Not necessarily, not just sort of, you know, there is, there's some intention and, and thought behind it. And as a result of that, you basically get to extract different skills and mental models from each one, and then they can complement each other and mix together in really interesting ways. What, what's interesting is that a lot of folks that resonate with this resonate with the idea of, for example, achieving greater success. You know, you could mix two things and, and instead of being a, a you know, a, jack of all trades that you know is just sort of not really good at anything you could become like a superstar in, in this sort of remix area and that's certainly true you know my motivation for this was a little bit less ambitious than that it was really more that i would keep finding myself in situations where if i did something for years i would just sort of start to get bored and i would want to do other things and you know, I kept doing this uh, and I would do this with, you know, I was an engineer and then I switched to manager and I switched CTO, then I switched back to engineer. So there's role-based exploration. Then there was sort of industry-based exploration. Then there was sort of forms of creativity-based exploration. So I was writing code, but then I was writing and then I was drawing and so on. And for a long time, actually, I kind of just thought, well, uh, I must be doing something wrong because nobody else seems to be doing this. And you know, some of my peers have now been, uh, actually, I remember a specific scenario. So I had started my career doing web development, full stack development. And then I switched over to iOS development at one point. And I had been doing iOS development for maybe three years at one point, And I went to this iOS developers meetup. And, you know, I looked around and I was just sort of trying to make some friends and, and, you know, meet people and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed that everyone around me had basically been, you call them like, you know, Apple lifers, like, like, as in, you know, they had just been doing this their whole lives. And I realized, like, when I was in web development, and I was doing rails, I remember meeting people who had been doing rails their whole life. And then when I was doing react, you know, it's kind of similar there. And I was just like, how come, you know, what's up? Like, what's going on? You know, and so I actually, it was a sort of source of anxiety that led me to say, you know what, I am having fun exploring these different things. And then I found I started to look it up and I found a couple of resources on this. There's actually a book, one book called The Polymath, which kind of just talks about it and defines what a polymath is and gives you some examples. To be honest, I had found stuff like this before where people talk about like Leonardo da Vinci or something. And, you know, I think Leonardo da Vinci is amazing, obviously. He did so many different pursuits, but I never really resonated with it because I was like, I don't know. He was like in a different time. It was just a whole different world. That doesn't really apply to me. But I found a few more sort of, I guess you could call them like modern day examples of people who had been sort of mixing different things. And so that's what led me to write it was just me sort of sharing my own story and trying to apply a narrative to it. I mean, I honestly didn't really think anyone would care about this post because it was really just like me talking about my experience doing this. But I think the reason that it uh, resonated was that people do feel stuck. They do feel like they want to explore and they want some level of safety and, and sort of guidance to know it's okay to do. So that so that's kind of where the, the nuance comes in, where it's like people sometimes tell me they're like, oh, well, because you're doing it, that must mean like it's great and, you know, you sh we should all do it. And I kind of am quickly point out like, well, you did read sort of the end of the post, right, where I basically talk about how it's hard. I mean, you know, you switch and then you have to start, you know, you have to not from scratch necessarily, but, you know, it that can be stressful. You know, you constantly feel like you don't belong in, a, in that specific group, like I was saying. So there are a lot of challenges with it. But as a result, I get to embrace all parts of me. And I feel like I'm more authentically showing up in this world because I give these different sides of me a chance to flourish. And they reward me with energy and, and inspiration and creativity. And that's kind of the, the sort of mental approach that I'm taking to it is just 
giving myself, all of myself, a chance to show up, seeing what happens, riding riding the wave and, and seeing where it takes me. It's a great way to look at things because, again, way too often we're overly specialized early on, especially the example that you brought up with engineers. I talk to so many people that say, I'm a Java engineer. I'm a Python engineer. And the more right. you think about it, the more you realize that, hey, wait a second. Well, yes, you are a Python engineer because you're writing Python code right now. That makes sense. But realistically, you don't know if you're going to be writing Python code in five years or yeah. 10 years or 15 years if you're thinking long term. And this is where the meta skill comes in of being able to learn how to learn is going to be mm -hmm. way, way more important than specialization. And this is where I love your approach because you're actually putting that to use. You're applying that meta skill of learning how to learn into breaking into these completely new fields, which yeah. leads me to my next question. How does one become a polymath? What do I need to do? Because judging by my own experience, I do have a lot of interests that I want to explore and just kind yeah. of do, you know, the podcast. I want to get good at drawing. I'm learning Korean. Uh, and the more <laughs> I think about it, the more I'm just like, am I spreading myself too thin? Yeah. Am I doing just too many things at once? And I'm your earlier example of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like the question, right? And it has many answers. But the first thing I would say is, um, I'm sure there's going to be folks that are listening. They're like, well, you know, a polymath has a very specific definition of someone, you know, who in three or more different fields achieves, you know, quote unquote, like Grammy level success. So like definitionally, that's what it is. And, and I personally, like, I don't really necessarily care about the specific definition of it. It's kind of more like, well, do you grow and invest significantly in, in multiple fields? So I, I think, for example, if you're primarily working in one area and then you kind of dabble in a few others, th those, are, those are really good things to do. They're hobbies, but you're not going to get benefits of intersection uh, unless you really invest in them. So, so I'll give one specific example. Like I can give a few of these, but... Um, one of them is um, uh, after I was writing a lot, I started to continue drawing. And then I started to actually write blog posts with comics in them. Um, and this is actually an excellent way to mix those two skills that if you're just sort of okay, um, like you just started drawing, it's, it, it, can, it can help, but you really do need to be able to pump out good drawings quickly to be able to complement the writing. And if the writing, you just kind of like, isn't very good, the, the illustration isn't going to save you. Like being a really good artist isn't going to make the post great. It's, it's really the connection between those two. And so you have to pursue each of those for long enough. So what I would say is the first thing is, okay, how do you pick what are the things to do? That's an important question. Like how, what, what if you just, like you said, spread yourself too thin? I think that I will present an important caveat here, which is I think especially for folks early in their career, I believe, at least because I saw success with this path, I think you should have one foundational pursuit is what I refer to it as. Like for me, it was engineering. It can be really anything, but I think that really helps because it shows you what is what does it mean to go almost all the way, quote unquote, and really get far in one area. And that serves a lot of benefits. One, it shows you what the full distance looks like because if you never go that far, you never actually understand what are the learnings you get down the line? Not in year one, not in year two, but in year maybe four or five. Secondly, it gives you uh, a leg to stand on. So you can have one area that you can go and play around and, 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 and pursue other things. And then you know you have that thing to come back to. So that's an important thing. Now, in terms of like choosing what areas, I think a lot of people might be, when they, when they research polymathism and they think about all these expertise and innovation and all, you know, these are big, capital I words, and, and it sounds kind of like very fancy. I actually think of it more as if you're going to put yourself through the stress of having to deal with many different things, it should be things that lift your spirit and, and give you a sense of playfulness. So that's actually where I started with a lot of my other pursuits, you know, especially drawing and, and animation. There was absolutely no purpose to it. And I did it you know, years ago, I just would just draw stuff, draw comics, no one would even see them. And now I'm like writing a book that uses illustrations, which the skills that I randomly 
putzed around with uh, years ago are now showing up. So it's important to recognize you may not know the, the benefits of those random hobbies. And so it's still important to give yourself a chance to do that. Um, some people will be like, well, you know, I've already been working on this second thing for like six months and am I a polymath yet <laughs> or whatever it is. It's like, don't worry about that. That's not, that's not the point. The point is like, are you having fun? Because if you genuinely are enjoying it and it, and it really is giving you, giving you life as they say, I think that's the source of really, really interesting work. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that everything you enjoy has to turn into work. Like we have to be careful with that. But I think that like if if you really genuinely care about the thing, it'll show. It'll really show. And and for those that are wondering, uh, you know, it's important also to note that the opposite is true. If you really don't care about something deep in your heart and, you know, you, you just force yourself to really work on it and and, you know, write something or put something out there, people can tell. That's the truth of it, is that they can see that this person just, there's something missing, even if they can't articulate it, you know? And so, so I believe that personally. So if, so if you don't, if you don't believe that, then it's difficult to accept this, this, this point. But since I believe that, I believe that as long as I truly am engaging in something with, with, with genuine interest and playfulness, then something cool is going to happen. And maybe it just means I play around and I put it down or or maybe it leads to something else, which leads to something else, which leads to something else. So it always starts kind of harmless. It always starts as like a little silly thing. And, you know, people will always comment on it that way. So, uh, you know, for example, for a long time, I would have conversations with my fellow founder friends and, you know, some of them would say stuff or ask me questions and, you know, in a very nice way, but or polite way would just kind of be like, well, all right, you know, are you done with your, you know, whatever it is that you're doing? Like, when are you going to do your next startup? So I think that's an important, I'm mentioning all these because I think they are challenges to overcome when you're giving yourself permission. So, you know, you mentioned a few of these other projects. I would say if you're feeling overwhelmed, that's a signal. You should feel free to cut it down and, and, you know, maybe have one primary thing and then a secondary thing that you're really focusing on. Actually, I was just writing about this uh, last week where I was thinking about versions of myself uh, and how I've sort of changed and, and become a different person probably than I was, uh, you know, years ago or even very recently. And one of the things I think about is uh, we have these different axes of ourselves where we can pursue different areas and different skills and things like that. And so if you think about the axes as something you have to pursue all of them at all times, it's quickly, you're going to get overwhelmed. You're going to be like, who does that? That's insane. You're just going to burn out. And it's true. So instead, you can have your focus area choice for now. So for example, I called it or think of it like a season. So it's now the season. For me, it's the season of short stories. And it means I'm really working on learning uh, the craft of short story writing and illustrations that go with it. Yes, I enjoyed animation and other things like that. That season is on hold. Yes, I enjoyed, you know, oh, playing with some other, um, you know, website technology I was learning and playing with Next.js or, or what have you. That season is on hold and we need to make these choices. Uh, and you may not, there's no right or wrong choice, but you have to recognize like how much are you capable of, what what, what space are you in? We did just sort of go through a pandemic. So like, if you're not, if the season is nothing, then that's fine too. Like, you know, that's another thing. Sometimes I feel like any, I, you know, probably this answer is rambling, but some one thing I've noticed is people do say stuff like, hey, uh, we're all working from home. You should be in your most productive point of your life creatively, you know? You should be doing more than ever because you're at home and you have all the opportunity. And it's like, yeah, but also I'm home because we're like in a lockdown because the world is going through a not like a major crisis like we've never seen before. So it's okay for me to just do nothing and work on myself and and grow and rest and heal. I think these are all important skills because otherwise you quickly go into burnout and, and that's where I'm... I'm like always flying close to the sun in this area 
like depending on what week you talk to me, I may be like, yep, got a handle on it. I know I'm focused on this and I'm, you know, and then the other week I'll be like, oh, <laughs> like, it's too much, man. I don't know. So it's a, that's a, that's actually the skill also is the, you, you have to develop that skill of managing yourself as you manage these different things uh, in order to be able to keep moving forward in, in some 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 healthy way. A number of parts of what you just said resonate a lot with me. And one of them was the incentives. There is the idea that I had for a while is that every hobby that I take, every project that I, it should become into something. It should mm. become a future business, or maybe I'm exploring an idea of a startup, or maybe I want to build this into something that will provide revenue. Right. Reality is not really. No, you 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 don't need that. If you genuinely enjoy something, maybe I don't want to for me, for it to become a business. I just do it because I love doing it. That's it. Right. And right. Similarly, when I talk to folks about vacations, as one example, this resonated with me so much as you just called out the fact that sometimes you just kind of like, meh, I don't want to do anything. Folks always think that they have to fill out free time with something productive. And you really don't. You actually need to take those times when you do nothing. You play video games for a week. Absolutely. It's, it is not, it, you need to reset your brain into a mode of operation that is not just constantly produce, 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 produce. Totally. Yeah. Burnout sucks. It's so true. And, oh, I have so much to say about that. But, um, you know, I think when I think about those urges and I think about those voices of I must produce, I must produce, there are internal and external origins of, of those. And both of them have been there for a really long time. So it's actually very difficult to overcome them. But, you know, for example, for me, the reason I, you know, had some, some level of startup success or whatever it is, was because I was like this. And I am still, it's, it's a big part of me is like, okay, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? Are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? Are we doing enough? And I mean, part of it is also societal influences. So, you know, for example, like we, at least in the United States and, and in many other countries, you participate in sort of a capitalist structure where you are expected to produce. And so if you are not producing, then you're like, what am I? You know, and, and it actually ties to identity. So, you know, if you're not making something, then you're not and you are not working, then who are you anyway? Uh, are you even worth being here? Well, you don't need healthcare anymore, clearly, because you don't have a job. So, you know, why do you, you know, and, and these questions, they linger. And that's what forces us to have to reconcile these, these. And so it's actually quite difficult to just say, what if I did this because I liked it? And I deserve to do things that I like. That's actually a difficult thing for a lot of folks, you know, and myself included. I mean, to really just say I deserve to just sit around at times and just do not even like nothing, like just literally just give myself a minute to, to sort of absorb what's going on. And so that ends up being the trigger for how we view every single thing that we do. Like you said, like little projects we think if it's not going to turn into a self-driving, uh, sustainable, profitable business, what kind of a side project is it? You know, it's obviously worthless and a waste of time. And so we, we kind of have to, um, the way that I'd like to think about it is sort of flip the script on a lot of this stuff. So, you know, newsletter is a good example for this. So, you know, when I write my newsletter, I have a lot of peers that write newsletters and they grow very quickly and they, you know they have huge audiences and they're monetizing them and and they're achieving great success with all of these techniques and meanwhile like i'm actually not uh, aiming to monetize my newsletter at all it's kind of just there as this thing where i write it and then uh, i end up talking to people really interesting people about things that i wrote in it and to me that's very important but that doesn't mean that you know, many times throughout the week, I will look at it and be like, mm, am I doing enough with it? Is it achieving enough? What's the point of doing it? You know, it's easy to forget these things. So I think the more voices we have that talk about this, which is why I try and talk about it as much as I can, I, I literally will say stuff like, I don't really care about growing it. If it grows, that's good. But if I really, really tell you the truth, I just like it when people talk to me about ideas that I share or they share their ideas 
in response. To me, that that is a form of energy that uh, then fuels the other stuff. So, you know, that's what it always comes back to for me is like, how do I get a system in place for myself that allows me to do things that give me energy? Um, so playful things give me energy. Talking to inspirational, you know, wonderful people gives me energy. So how do I put myself in a position to just do that on a regular basis? And if you frame it that way, I know it sounds simple and all that, but I'm all constantly struggling with these things, which I think people underestimate. I get emails like that where they're like, clearly you're, you've figured this. And I'm like, I've, I've figured nothing out. I am just trying here and like, it's a struggle. The human condition is, <laughs> it's an infinite challenge, you know? So yeah, that's really important. Such a great perspective as well, because you're truly focusing on things that matter to you. Asking that question, why? Why am I doing this? And if you're asking why and you're saying, well, because I want to get followers, okay, and then what? Yeah. Right? We're, we're all as humans primed to be on this. I think it's called the hedonic treadmill, right? Yeah. Say, if only I have a thousand followers on my YouTube, I'll be happy. Yes. And then that happens and you're like, all right, well, that's nothing. If only I get these many subscribers on my newsletter, I'll be happy. Then yeah. that happens. And you're like, oh, I guess now I need 10,000. Yeah. And you're getting into this mode of you're, you're truly losing sight of why you're doing this. Is yeah. this for your own growth or is this because you want to have some kind of a vanity metric to go around it? Yeah. Oh, man. You know, one of the things that I think about is I try to ask myself this. And again, these are questions I have to ask because I constantly struggle with it is where am I living? Where am I living? Am I living here or am I living in the future? And it's a sort of silly premise, but like, what am I doing? I'm doing this for tomorrow. I'm doing this thing so I can have more uh, subscribers, so I can grow this channel, so I can get more likes on this thing. And it's not actually necessarily that any of those are bad. They're actually that I asked myself a different question, which is when it happens, where will you be living? The craziest part is you, you live in the future for this thing and then you get there and you're not even there, right? You know, which is what you're just describing now. You're, you're, you're pointing it out really well, which is that even when you get it, you finally got it. You did all this work, you know, you sacrificed so much. You were so tired, so many nights. You did, you just, you did it and you're here and you're not even here. You're not even here to celebrate. It's like a birthday party for something and you're not even there. And I found myself in those situations in the past where like something would happen and I was just so this, 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 that, 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 that. I didn't have even a moment to pay attention to it. And now I'm finally starting to understand some of the, the wisdom of, you know, folks like Alan Watts and, and um, you know, Pima Chodron who, who talk about what it actually means to have a sort of an awareness and, and a perspective of what's going on. I'll give you a strange example of what I mean. You know, I was going for a walk the other day and there was a bird that I saw uh, and the bird had a worm in its mouth and it was 2 p.m. Because I noticed the bird, I noticed that what it was doing, which is eating a worm at 2 p.m. And I just started laughing because I imagined this worm had waited Till 2 p.m. because it knew the early bird gets the worm and it waited and waited and came out at 2 p.m. and it still got eaten anyway. And, you know, there, it's not about the lesson or the moral in it, but it's that I noticed this. And I have found that when I noticed it, I realized that was the first time I was actually awake that day. You know, I had just been so busy since the morning and just doing this and this and that. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. This was the funniest, most interesting thing. And I still remember it. I don't actually remember anything else from that day, but I remember that. So what does it mean? It means that, you know, events can have meaning or no meaning, depending on whether we are there to see them, right? So it's not just about milestones in our life. It's about everything. It's like, can you find meaning and joy in a bird eating a worm at 2 p.m.? And if you can... Your life is very different. Your life is no longer contingent on certain arbitrary milestones that society told you are supposed to be important and that you told yourself that that thing is going to be important. 
So, I mean, this is hard to do because, again, you just lose it. You just fall right back out and you just go straight into the wave. I wake up, I'm, I'm doing this, then I got to do that and, and so on. And so, and so you're just looking forward on your calendar. What's the next thing? What's the next? What's the next? What's the next? So that's what I try and remind myself of is, listen, I mean, we yes, fine, we can work on this. Yes, we can look forward to this. We must have things to look forward to. We're human. We like that. Just promise me at least that when it happens, can we be there? Can you promise me that, Salman? And then I say, okay, I'll try. And and so then when it happens, then it's like, okay, be happy, reflect, try and extract as much of it as you can out of this thing. Having this conversation with you is a celebration of the writing that I have done consistently that left led me to have a chance to stay connected with you you know, and seeing your smile. This is very important to me. This is the very important moment in this day. So I feel like if we figure out how to find meaning and and elevate the, the meaning of these things, then we can start to put down the mantle and, and start to reduce the focus and the burden of, of these sort of other milestones and, and what meaning they, you know, they, they need to have for us. It's truly about enjoying life because there's more to life than these vanity metrics that we establish for ourselves. And the right. reality is we are terrible at understanding what will actually matter in the future because we have this perfect image of if oh, only yeah. I get the promotion, if only I move to the city, if only I have this car. And then, like you said, that happens and you realize that it actually didn't make as much of a difference as I thought it would. Right. And then it, it's disappointing because you felt that you created this perfect image that happiness is just around the corner. I'm going to put my life on pause because I just need to do these things only to realize that actually this didn't matter at all. Oh, <laughs> it's interesting. I, the way that you frame it makes me think, you know, what you said was we don't know, really, we're actually quite bad at predicting, you know, if we were to take the engineer framework, we're really bad at pointing this, you know, we're just really bad at it. And but if you think about why, why, why can't we predict that so effectively, I, you know, the thing, the first thought that comes to mind is the person that makes the decision to commit to doing something for a year and the person that receives the accomplishment a year later is a different person. That person has gone through a lot of things and their priorities have changed. And so it's almost like you were looking back at that other, I look back at the other Salman and be like, wow, you really cared about this, huh? Well, it's okay. I'm glad we did it, but now I know. That, you know, I, you know, and you can look at it that way, too. You can look at it as a learning and, and an appreciation of, of yourself. And, you know, that's that thing I struggled with the most is they call it like uh, self-compassion, self-kindness, self-love. And the reason I struggle with it is because I always started with those mantras. You know, they kind of ask you to do those like, I love myself and, and so on. And I was, I was like, eh, this just feels weird to say. I don't know. I don't really like it. But the way that I think of, try to think about it instead is just, um, you know, if you look at yourself as this past version, a different person who worked so hard, you know, they really tried. They didn't know. They just didn't know. Don't blame them. You know, they really tried. He really did. You know what? It's okay. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. And if we appreciated our all the hard work of ourselves, I think we would be a little lighter on ourselves. I'm saying all this out loud, even as I fail to do it constantly, you know, I'm constantly criticizing myself. But I like the way you framed it is that we're not going to know, because it's a different person. <laughs> They're going to be like, I okay, you know, it's like someone at their desk, they're at the desk, and then someone comes in and they're like, here you go. Uh, you ordered this, you'll be like, what is this? And you'll be like, oh, it's this thing you wanted desperately. There was nothing more than you wanted. Like two years ago, you're like, I don't even know what this is. You know, <laughs> and you're, I, don't, I don't care about this. It's a funny like comedy of, of how our lives play out where we, we don't get to be the same person by that. So it's, so it's interesting. And the life is nonlinear. That's the mistake mm. too, because the, when you try to plan out, you know, I, I was big on that, you know, five or six years ago when I was still fresh. And I would think about my five-year career plan. And right. I'd be like, okay, by this year, I want to be at this position at this company. And by right. this year, at this position. <laughs> but then you realize that it doesn't work that way because 
One, you're setting yourself up artificially to some bar that might not exist. One, right. because you don't know what opportunities will pop up in your career, in your life. Some other recruiter might email you tomorrow and say, you know what? There's actually a better position for you. Like, are you taking yeah. it or you're not? You're going to look at that plan and say, well, actually, my five-year plan, it didn't quite fit. Like, it, 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 you can't linearly establish and say it's going to go exactly this way because yeah. life, life is a sine curve. Like, it goes up and down, and sometimes it goes up, and sometimes it goes down. Sometimes right. it just goes straight. You don't know. This makes me think of two questions. So I always like to try and think of both sides of it. So let's say one side of it is that we don't know. Then the other side of it, you might say, oh, well, then if we don't know, then why plan anything? You know, just, just so, you know, what, what are you saying? Are you saying just, just muck about and just sort of run around? And it's like, you know, the way I try to think about it is, number one, what you described was serendipity appearing. Something, something, you know, and so I actually try and think about how can we maximize serendipity? So, so everything that we do, like when you when you're doing this podcast, you are maximizing serendipity because people are going to be listening. They're going to hear your words, then they're going to think, you know what? I want to talk to 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 Den about this and this and this and that, and it's going to change your life. Um, and the more things like this that you do, the more likelihood that is. And I think that's kind of cool. So I just think of it that way. But then it also means planning and thinking forward and having those long term goals, but being resilient in how we deal with what, how life actually plays out. And instead of saying like, oh man, I had this plan. You're saying, obviously you're gonna say, well, this is great. This is a new opportunity. I'm gonna go in this direction. And which goes back to kind of some of the things we were talking about with, with being, you know, when you, when you learn how to learn, you learn how to be dynamic and pivot. And so in the same way, being dynamic and being able to evolve, you know, more and react more rapidly to changes in our environment, I think this is actually going to be probably one of the most important skill sets as we see, you know, technology is evolving faster than ever before. You know, we're seeing the world change at a, the rate of change is increasing, not just that it's changing. So these are like core skills to, to thriving in our, in our world, really, in some level. Salman, we're getting to the top of the hour. So I want to ask one question for you. Sure. If there's one unconventional advice that you would give folks that are early in career, mid-career, anything that you would consider something that maybe you learned through your own experience that was not obvious at the time, that was not something that you could read a blog post or a book about that now it just kind of clicked and you say, yes, I wish more people knew that. What would that be? Mm, just one? Oh, man. Hmm. I, I, I can't give you one. I'll give you a few. But and I'm not sure how unconventional they are. But the, the most important lesson for me in the early stage of my career was investing in people. So rather than thinking of companies and thinking of titles and roles, I would think about who are the people that I'm surrounding myself with and betting on them. And that ended up really, really returning rewards because it led to meeting people that I ended up starting a company with. It led to finding mentors who sort of guided me through the next years. And I think people talk about like, okay, you should join a good company because you'll learn from this and this and that. You should work on product and you should work on this technology and so on. But none of that really matters if you don't have the right people around you. And I think we have a good instinct on this. I think people have a good instinct. So I didn't know much at early stage, but I did have this instinct about these people and I followed them and they were, luckily I got, I got lucky that, that they kind of brought it. I think the other thing I would say is I spent most of my, let's say, eight early, first eight years of, of startup life, very heads down, working hard. There's sort of a debate actually that was going on recently about like, is that what you should do early stage or should you be more balanced about it? I don't think there's a quick answer to that. I think it's hard to say. Like, I know that working hard paid dividends for me and it unlocked other things. Did I need to work as hard as I did? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. So I'm not even going to try. But I do think what I should have done more of is started working on developing a public voice. It wasn't until maybe a decade into my career that I really started to write anything online, give talks and stuff like that. And so it was kind of like I did all this important work and no one knew about it. And so I, my serendipity machine was non-existent, basically. And I kind of, it's not that I wish, I don't actually wish for the past 
or anything like that. But I do think that early in your career, that can be a complete game changer. So I would, I would, I would say, I would say those two, uh, there's a bunch more, but, but those are probably the most important ones. Super, super valuable advice that I recommend folks follow and subscribe to. And speaking of following and subscribing, where can people find you online? The best place is if you uh, visit my website, salmon.io, you can find my newsletter there. I'd love to to, to see there. I, that's kind of where I share most of my kind of personal thoughts and creative journals and updates on, on the book that I'm working on, if you're interested in that. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, at Dare to Rant. I hang out there and my DMs are generally open. If you're listening and kind of want to ask me something about something I said here or call me out on something that I said, feel free. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying, I'm learning and, and, and I work in public just like, just like Dan does. And so I want to be generous and, and, and mention that, that I'd love to, ch- I'd love to chat with more people about these topics. Talmont, you're one of the most interesting people I follow on Twitter. So it's a must follow period. And if you're not following Salman, you're doing something wrong. But uh, at that, thank you so much for being here with us today. And sure, you're welcome. Your thank you for having me. And before we go, I just want to say something to the listeners, which is that if you're listening to this podcast, I just want to mention something that happened before the podcast. So a couple of weeks ago, before, or actually it was a few weeks ago, I got an email from Den. And he just gave me a heads up about this podcast. And he had a list of some questions and some things he wanted to talk about. And I just have to say, it was so thoughtful. It was so clear that you you put in this extra effort and care into each one of these shows. I was honestly amazed. And I just had to mention it here that you're listening to someone who really cares. And for me, I'm not sure there's anything more beautiful on earth than just seeing someone who really cares about their craft and, and being able to see that energy come across. So I was delighted to be invited to the show and to be able to talk to you, but to, to participate in this way and see you just show up for others, you know, I appreciate it. Your listeners appreciate it. So thank you for being you and, um, and, uh, and, and keep going, my friend. It's an honor to call you my friend. Thank you for the kind words. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me.